Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless. Lord, thank you for these uh, words uh, from Nehemiah, uh, this whole book that we've given ourselves to study this fall. Lord, thank you for teaching us and uh, for guiding us. Lord, I pray that uh, this might be part of uh, the word of God that we hide in our hearts, um, that instruct us in our ways, and that point us most of all to the word made flesh in Jesus. Uh, instruct us now. Uh, your servants are listening, Lord. Amen. Okay, we've come uh, to the end of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. What a great chapter, right? <laughs> what a fun chapter to read. Um, and... I, I, okay, I want to do a couple things. I want us to look at this chapter, but I also want us to just consider this book that we've looked at together. Um, because this book is sort of feels like a lot of life where there's lots of successes and there's lots of setbacks that take place. It seems at times as though the work of the Lord is going forward in just astounding ways at times in this book. And then there's other times where it just feels like the opposition seems so great. The opposition outside of the community of faith and the opposition within the community of faith. And then there's times where we actually go, I don't even know what to make of this person. Are they in or they out? What, what's going on here? Um, we've seen in Nehemiah what uh, many people to, uh, consider to be one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. Some of you might remember way back when in the beginning of September in chapter one, I shared with you a quote from Daniel Rowland, who was one of the great Welsh preachers during the first great awakening. He said, that if, if you're a backslider, read Hebrews. If you're devotional, read the Psalms. If you're prone to rebellion, read Judges and Joshua. But if you want to accomplish great things, read and study Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah, you'll remember the beginning of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. He receives this letter from one of his brothers, Hanani. And the letter said that the remnant that was in Jerusalem was in great distress, and they were full of shame, and the wall of Jerusalem was taken down. It was, in, it was destroyed. Um, the community itself was broken down. What you get in that, in that little letter, the community itself was broken down, and their wall and their buildings were, were broken down. And what happens right there in chapter 1 is it absolutely breaks Nehemiah's heart. And you might remember this, actually. What happened is that Nehemiah, when he heard this news, um, he just sat and he wept and he mourned, it said, for days. Um, just sitting in the grief of a broken community. But what we read next is that what he did is he offered it all up to the Lord. You know, so the second half of chapter 1 is this prayer that's offered up to the Lord of the situation that's going on in Jerusalem and his broken heart. And then what we learn is that four months later, it takes him actually four months to move to the point where he says, hey, you know, I am a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the ruler of the entire Persian Empire. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this role and I'm going to move towards this possibility to repair what was broken. 
And so he does something actually really remarkable. And it actually, it acknowledges, I don't know if you'll remember this, but it acknowledges that he was full of fear when he went before the king. And what he does is he says, king, I want to go back. Would you let me leave your service, even though I'm your cupbearer? And would you give me a letter so that I can have safe travel and so that I can actually accomplish this thing that is breaking my heart that needs to be done, the rebuilding of Jerusalem? And what we learn is that the king actually gave him even more than he asked for. He, he supplied all of, all of the goods needed to accomplish this great task. And what we learn about is that this was because the hand of the Lord was upon him. That's what it says. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And actually, what happens is he goes back to Jerusalem and he, and he surveys everything. And everybody's just dejected. They're like, this is no way this is going to happen. And Nehemiah says, no, the Lord will make us prosper. The Lord will make us prosper. Okay, so then, then what we learn in chapter 3 is uh, the work gets done by all kinds of people. Actually, I kind of said this last week too. You know, there's no bench warming in the kingdom. Everybody's supposed to be all in. And what we find in that beautiful chapter, which is just a bunch of names of people doing stuff, almost entirely it's a bunch of names. But what we learn is that there's the nobles getting dirty. And actually, do you remember there were the couple that were called out because they didn't? actually jump in. But then there were the Levites that were helping rebuild the walls. There were the men and there were the women and there were the single folk and there were the goldsmiths. And does anybody else remember what else? The perfumers. The perfumers were getting their hands dirty. We, I love that detail in chapter three. But the, but the point was that everybody was all in. And then when we get to chapter four, what we find out is that there's all this external opposition that's happening. These guys, Sanballat and Tobiah especially, and what they first do, what Sanballat and Tobiah first do is they just mock and they jeer and they sneer and they say, what are these feeble Jews doing? Trying to make fun of them. Are you going to take that broken down wall out of the rubbish bin that's all sooty and actually build something out of it? And then you might remember that Tobiah, I just think it's so, like, he was this dirty guy. He goes, yeah, even a fox, if he gets up on that wall, it's going to fall over. Just making fun of the work. Trying to get inside and in the mind and the heart of the people doing the work. And then actually you might remember that, that as the chapter progresses, they actually get other people to, to, to try to thwart the work that the Lord is doing. And the work that God's people are doing in rebuilding the wall around the city. And what we learn at the end of that chapter is that the people are still working with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And the work is getting done. But then we come to chapter 5, right? And chapter 5 is like this really, really important lesson that we have to learn that is actually deeply sobering too, which is that most of the opposition, the hardest opposition to the work of God in the world doesn't actually come from outside of the church, but from inside the church. I mean, when Sambal and Tobiah are doing all their stuff and when they're gathering people together to sort of thwart the work, it seems as though the work is just keep, keeps going. But then what happens is actually some of the men and their wives say, hey, our own people are charging such exorbitant interest on loans that our own sons and our daughters are going into slavery. And Nehemiah has to stop and say, wait, we've got to deal with this. Because the fact is, is that the opposition inside of the church itself does more harm to the work of the kingdom of God than the opposition outside. You've got to deal with what's going on inside. And I share with you a quote that I think is very, very worth remembering for the rest of your life. It's by Reinhold Niebuhr. He says, the church is like the ark. You could not stand the stench within 
if not for the storm without. The church is like the ark. So we get to the beginning of chapter 6, and actually what we see again there is sort of an external opposition. But what I suggested to you is it presents us with this question of what is a Christian? I mean, there's some, pe- some people in that chapter that are clearly outside the community. They're, they're in opposition to it. There's some people that are sort of just fuzzy, and there's some people there that are like, they're committed, and they're doing the work of God. They're, ser- they're seriously trying to follow God. But here's what happens at the end of chapter 6 is the work gets done. And, and everybody's supposed to be like amazed. Wait, you actually built, rebuilt this wall, and it said it happened in 52 days. If you remember, it was nearly two miles long, and it, it, the, the, the width varied from eight feet to 20 feet, and they rebuilt it in 52 days. And actually, what happened near the end of that chapter is, it says this, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. What kept being clear all throughout this book is that it was the Lord's doing it. It was the Lord's doing it softened Artaxerxes' heart. It was the Lord's doing that protected them from the outside opposition and, and gave Nehemiah wisdom to deal with the internal opposition. And it was the Lord's doing that created this wall that was finally rebuilt. But, but one of the things I've been saying all along is that this book is not just about rebuilding the wall. It's not just about the building structures and helping us understand like the necessity of actually having buildings that work and <laughs> things like that that we deal with now. But that the building always had to do with the community itself. The wall was for the sake of the community. Um, and actually, one of the things that you learn even in this chapter is that the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem were precisely because of how the community had lived previously. And so how they understand who they are, how they orient themselves in the world and the life that they live and the ways they confess their life and God's life and all this kind of stuff has to do with the well-being of the building and the community. And so what I've suggested to you is not only is the second half of the book about rebuilding the community, but the main point, maybe, of the entire book is about rebuilding the community. What will this community look like? What will orient it? What stories will they tell about themselves and about God? And where do they learn those stories? And how do they act? What, com- what, what, what sort of life do they commit to? How do they give thanks? All these kinds of things. And that's what we've really been considering from chapter 7 on. With a couple extremely long chapters about names that we actually largely skipped over, even though Jed read a lot of other names. It could have been a lot longer than we experienced. Um, now, here's the thing. Okay, so this is this big overview, and I want you to sort of hopefully, hopefully you've actually learned somewhat of the book of Nehemiah this fall. But as we come to the end, the final chapter, um, though it might seem really odd since you've just listened to it, I want to suggest to you that as this community is called to be a community of the word and a community of thanks and a community that's committed and a community that confesses, I want to suggest to you that this is also saying this community is a community of grace. And this is how you respond. What? <laughs> Peter, I was attentive when Amy was listening. Uh, I don't know how much grace I saw in this chapter. Peter, let me remind you what I heard about. I heard about Ammonites and Moabites that should never enter the assembly of God. Um, I heard about Nehemiah being very angry and throwing Tobiah's stuff outside of the chamber. I heard that. Um, I heard about how Nehemiah was warning people about buying and selling on the Lord's Day. Uh, I even heard Nehemiah say that folk who were working on the Lord's Day to the people who were working on the Lord's Day, why don't you lodge outside? Why do you lodge outside of the wall? 
If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. Peter, 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 Peter. I heard Amy say this about Nehemiah's reaction to the Jewish people who were, who were marrying people who were not following the Lord, but were following other gods. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Peter, that's what I heard. Finally, Peter, I heard Amy read that he chased that son-in-law out of town and away from him. It's a pretty fun chapter, isn't it? It's fairly interesting. So what's the deal? A community of grace? What are you talking about? Just like put your fun Christian word on this chapter? What is this? Okay. I want to answer that question. I'm going to get to it. But I also do want to actually talk about some of the specifics in this chapter and some of the specific things that sort of shock us. So first, what about this, these Moabites? I mean, it says the Mo Ammonites and the Moabites can never enter the assembly of God. You know what I'm going to suggest to you? That's actually not true. What? That's what it says very clearly in the passage. Well, you know, we actually have, we have a whole book of our Bible that is named after a Moabite. Anyone know what it is? The book of Ruth. We have a book of the Bible that's named after a Moabite, Ruth. And you know what? Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. What? And that means that she's the great-great-grandmother of King Solomon who built the temple. What's up with that? What Nehemiah is doing there, and that prohibition, let me say this fairly clearly, has nothing to do with racial or ethnic prohibitions. It has everything to do with the religious identity. So the people that are saying, I am a Moabite, are saying that their identity is in the Moabite way of life and the Moabite gods and all of that. That's what's happening here, okay? So the people who are worshiping other gods are not allowed in the assembly of God, okay? That's what's going on. Second detail, <laughs> Tobias' furniture literally gets thrown out, and Nehemiah does it with his own hands. Nehemiah's just coming in with like, like a storm. Now, um, what's going on? Tobiah has been allowed by Eliashib to use the storehouses of the Lord's house. This is temple property just to store his own goods and to like make his own house. <laughs> That's that's what is happening. Nehemiah is saying, you can't do this. You can't just come in and treat God, like move all of God's stuff out and move your own stuff in. Not going to happen. Okay, let's talk about another specific. Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Whoa, that's probably the most intense one. Um, but let me, so this is actually very helpful that you understand this. In the Bible, um, it's not uncommon that shaving your head was a sign of saying, I have done something very shameful. It's like sitting in sackcloth and ashes and, live, and understanding what you've done and allowing it to sit with you and to affect you physically. I've suggested this many times, but our physical life always interacts with our spiritual life. That's why we stand up at times. That's why we clap our hands and why we confess being prostrate. All these things, our body deeply influences our physical life. And so shaving your head and having no hair, not like me, no hair, but like intentional no hair. Um, I didn't mean to have hair like this. This is what God gave me. Um, 
it was a sign of saying, I, I, I'm, I've done something deeply shameful, and I, I should not have done this, and I'm repenting. And these people weren't going to do it on their own. <laughs> Nehemiah says, you have done something, and you need to sit in it. You need to understand how horrible this has been. And you need to actually experience what's going on here. And so Nehemiah is being a good leader, and he's making the people learn how to, to learn how to do it in a very intense way. Um, but here's what's ha- happening, and this is actually really, really important that you understand this detail. What's going on is that what they have done is they've intermarried with, fo- with foreigners who are worshiping other gods. And it's so much to, so that the detail that we have in this passage is that the, half the children don't even know how to speak Hebrew. They don't, they don't understand it. Well, how are they going to know the story of God? How are they going to know their own story? How are they going to be oriented in the world that we've just looked at just a few chapters earlier if they cannot even hear the word of the Lord as it's given to them? So, I mean, it's a deeply, deeply serious thing to uh, marry outside of the community of faith because then you know, your children are essentially gone according to this passage. Um, all right, another specific, one more specific. What is the deal with Nehemiah running out the son-in-law dude. <clears throat> well, whose son-in-law is he? He's Sanballat's son-in-law. Who's the guy that actually, you know, got to take, out, take God's stuff out from his house and put his own stuff in? That was Tobiah. It's these guys we've been dealing with for this whole chapter. And Nehemiah's saying, y'all, these people are not helping you know the Lord. They need to be gone. I'm going to run them out for you. Okay. Still, I understand some of the details of this chapter are just wild. But I want to suggest to you that this chapter is a chapter that actually communicates that we're to be a community of grace. And that might shock you. So why is that? Well, here's what's going on, right? So Nehemiah... We largely know because we can date Artaxerxes, and we know from the beginning of Nehemiah what year it was when Artaxerxes was reigning. The beginning of Nehemiah and most of the book takes place in the year 445 before Christ, right? Now, what we also know is that Nehemiah was the governor for 12 years in Jerusalem. It says this in this chapter. And then he actually went back. He went back to serve Artaxerxes. Remember in chapter 2, Artaxerxes and his his wife says, well, how long are you going to be gone? Now, Nehemiah didn't know at the time, but the answer was 12 years. And then he went back. And now in this chapter, he says, hey, you know, I'm going to go back and check in on Jerusalem. And he goes back and he checks in on Jerusalem. He leaves Susa and Artaxerxes and all. And what he does when he goes back is he finds the desecration of the temple of God. Uh, He finds that the tithes had not been given. Um. He find, uh, they hadn't been providing for the Levites. That's what's highlighted here in this chapter. Or the singers. Basically, the offerings of the Lord had never been given or hadn't been continued. And he found that people used, their, used God's time however they wanted. And he, and he found that people decided that they could do whatever they want with their relationships. Who cares what God says? I get to do what I want with my relationships. That's what he found. Now, what were the commitments that the people made just three chapters earlier in chapter 10? Some of y'all will remember this. It was like two weeks ago in our, in our life together. Well, the commitments that they made had specifically to do with money and tithing, had specifically 
to do with their time and specifically the Lord's Day and not working on it and using it however they want. And more specifically, it had to do with who they would marry and their relationships and that their relationships, they don't get to do whatever they want. They are to submit them under the rule of Christ their king. That was the very commitments that they had made. Now, what were the reasons for the demise of Israel? Well, we get it. Actually, it's mentioned right here in this chapter. Solomon, the divided kingdom happened right after Solomon. And why did that happen? Because he decided he got to do whatever he wants with his relationships. And intermarried. Foreign wives who worshipped other gods. Why did the exile happen? Well, people were worshiping other gods. They were setting up, you know, uh, other places of worship. And they were offering their sacrifices, their tithes, which was a picture of their lives, which is what they are now today, to other gods. They were desecrating the temple. The very situation which they found themselves in, with, with, which initially, you know, if we would have looked at Ezra, we would have seen Zerubbabel and Ezra rebuilding the temple and then the destruction of the walls. What we see is the very situation they found themselves in were precisely because of these sins right here. They said, well, I get to do whatever I want with my money. I get to do whatever I want with my time. Even when it's, you say it's your day, I get to do whatever I want with it. And I'm going to marry whoever I want. I don't want to listen to you, Lord. King of kings. Yeah, right. I mean, this is the exact sins that they had committed themselves to not doing. Three chapters earlier, they're the exact sins that got them in the place where the walls were destroyed and the temple was razed. This is exactly what had got them in that situation. So what do you do when somebody does the same thing again and again? When they sin against you in the same way? I mean, you know, at best we're like, it's like Peter, we're like, do we forgive him seven times, Lord? That's a lot. I mean, seven is the number of completion. That's a ton. Because most of us, if actually somebody sinned against us one time, we're going to be like, I'll forgive you. You know, They do the same thing. We're like, that's really annoying. Don't do that again, please. They do it again. We're like, I actually might need to cut you off. I need proper boundaries in my life. Right? Three times, it's like, uh, three strikes, you're out. Sorry. And so Peter goes, hey, how about, how about I forgive you? How about, how about seven times? We'll forgive him seven times. And what's Jesus' response? Seven times seven. You got to keep going. And what do we find here in this chapter? The very thing that they've been doing, not, not 12 years ago that they committed themselves to, but literally 500 years earlier that Solomon was doing. And 721, the Assyrians you know, t- take away the 10 northern tribes. This is 445. Three, uh, 280 years earlier. And 586, this is 445, 150 years early. I mean, it's just the same thing over and over and over again. And eventually you'd think God might just say, done with you. Because that's basically what we would do. But instead, Nehemiah gets sent back. And Nehemiah comes and he says, don't do this, but follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love and his mercy is new every morning and it's new for you this morning. This pattern of life that you found yourself in does not have to define you. Come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me and let me shape you. 
I mean, this is exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus, right? The Lord sends Nehemiah, but he actually sends himself. Jesus himself comes. And he says, how I would have loved to gather you together. I want you with me. I mean, think, actually, remarkably, and every commentator noticed this, that basically what Nehemiah does is exactly what Jesus does. It's in the courts of the temple that Nehemiah throws out uh, Tobiah's stuff. It's in the courts of the temple that Jesus comes and he flips over tables and he says, what are you doing to my father's house? And you've got to hear that that act of Jesus and the act of Nehemiah is actually a deeply gracious act because he's saying, come back to me. You've been running and you've been running and you've been running and I want you in my family. You're a part of this family. You're a part of us. Follow the Lord. These are gracious words. This is a gracious act. The Lord disciplines the one that he loves because he's part of the family. He's part of the family. God is always gracious, and his kindness is what leads us to repentance. And this is actually the grace of God that we find in this chapter. And it's the grace of God that we find all throughout Scripture, people running away from him, and he keeps calling them back again and again and again. Let me uh, end with uh, a story. It's sort of longer. It's by Timothy Paul Jones. I read this this week. And he, he talks about when, he, when they first brought their middle daughter to Disneyland. Their middle daughter they adopted. And she'd actually already been adopted by another family previously. And that previous family, they had gone to Disney often, actually. But she had never gone. And, and um, Timothy Paul Jones says, says he doesn't know exactly why they didn't bring her along uh, when all the other kids got to go. They, they don't know what was going on there. Um, but what he knew is that by the time that they adopted this daughter, um, she had seen lots of pictures of Disneyland. She knew all the different characters. She could name some of the rides. Uh, she, she had seen all of these pictures of others going, and she knew that she had never gone. And it was something that had been kept from her. Um, He said this, When it came to passing through the gates of the magic kingdom, she'd always been the one left on the outside. And once I found out about this history, I made plans to take her to Disney uh, Disney World the next time um, that we could get down in that area as a family. Now here's what happened actually though. So they made plans. They knew they were going to get down there. He had a speaking engagement near, near Disney World, so they were going to go down there. I said Disneyland because I grew up thinking Disneyland in, on the West Coast, Disney World. Um, but as they, as they began to, like, as, this, as this day approached, he said the month leading up to it, this, this middle daughter just became like unbelievably disobedient. I mean, if there was something to be stolen, she would steal it. If there was a lie to be told, she would tell it. If there was an insult to be made to the other children, she was going to make it. And she was going to make it really good and really hurtful. Um, he said it this way: As the days winded down, the mutinies multiplied. Basically, she was doing anything she could to get on the bad side of the family. Let me read you the rest of the stories he wrote. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter into my lap, onto my lap to talk her through her latest escapade. 
I know what you're going to do, she said flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make sense to me. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the magic kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right. We won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure. There may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family, and we're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that her behavior grew better after that moment. They didn't. Her choice has pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day, overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and lots of lines mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhaustive, exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, so how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Um, the Bible never never paints a picture of Christians being good people. It calls us to that, right? Leviticus says, be holy for I'm holy. And Nehemiah wants faithfulness here. Um, but life in the kingdom of God is only ever by grace. You, ne you never get in because you're good. You get in because you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. and Your heavenly Father loves you and the Spirit dwells within you. There's lots of lessons to learn from the book of Nehemiah. Lessons about leadership and lessons about everybody being all in. And, and the need for physical spaces to be well. and A community to be informed by the scriptures and know their stories well. Know God's story. Those are all good lessons. Um, but I love that this book ends this way. You know? Because you have to say, nothing in my hands I bring. It's simply to the cross I cling. It's not because we're good, but because we're part of the family. Lord, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. 
Thank you for your love for us. And the kindness that leads us to repentance, even the kindness of Jesus to flip tables over. To get in people's faces. To get in our face sometimes, Lord. To show us vividly the destruction that comes about because of our sin. And the harm that it does us in the world. Thank you for those things. Thank you that this book ends in such a strange and wild way. Thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is not because of how good we are. Because none of us would get to be in the magical place of your kingdom. But because we're yours. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.